0: Um, we're going to start with uh, just a common disclaimer here. This webinar is for education, uh, educational purposes only and should and should not be construed as professional advice. Your tax and investment situation is unique and requires a competent professional to evaluate your specific set of facts and needs. Please contact a professional to receive advice on your tax accounting or investment situation. Okay, I'm sure everybody understands that. So now that we have that out of the way, let's um, yeah let's just try to kind of work through some of these questions here okay so and these none of these are in in any particular order and i also um this morning there was a bunch of other signups uh that came in uh with some questions so they're not on here so if we have time i'll circle back around to those um because there were some good questions in there but um i think there were maybe four or five okay so question number one uh canada revenue adjusted my return uh, my returns and say i owe them another 900 dollars they changed my foreign tax credit calculation on my returns, and I could only get 15% U.S. tax on my U.S. pensions. My accountant says said that it wasn't worth the fight with CRA, and I had um, and had to pay the amounts. Do you? I need a second opinion. Okay, so I, th- I think I know. I think I know what happened. And when was, with a lot of these questions, I don't have full context, so I'm going to do my best to answer them. Uh, but if I'm missing some information, you know, it's going to be tough. So um, if if for some reason I don't answer your question the way um, you think it it probably should be answered because I'm missing that info, just just um, shoot me an email. Uh, so in this case, it sounds so. So what happens when when you claim a foreign tax credit on your Canadian return? And a lot, and we know that clients know this. You you, you often get a review letter from CRA. So let's say you claim a two thousand dollar foreign tax credit on your Canadian tax return. You file the return, you know, in April you get to June or August or even September, or even we're getting these still in the fall, CRA will send you a review letter saying, can you please um, show us the calculations for the $2,000 foreign tax credit. Now, in this case, that's probably what happened. They probably received the letter. Uh, They sent in either their US, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna assume in this case that this is a US citizen living in Canada. So they sent in probably their US return or a transcript showing how much US tax they paid um and they and they likely have gotten a response because it's been assessed here and they they know they owe a specific amount of extra tax uh they likely claim more than 15%. So why why can you only claim 15% tax uh on US pensions? So um and and once again we're we're going to try not to get too technical um today but just generally speaking so um for Canadian residents that uh, earn U.S. pension income, uh, the the top rate of tax uh, in terms of withholding or just tax that you should be paying in general under the treaty is fifteen percent. So let's say they actually paid twenty percent on their U.S. tax return on their U.S. pension, then they try to claim twenty percent tax on their uh, on their Canadian tax return. CRA would only give them credit for fifteen. So that's probably the difference. And the difference is them just kicking out the difference between whatever makes up the nine hundred dollars. So the difference between fifteen and what they claimed. Um, and then the question, well, how do you resolve this? So likely, if that's the case, the Canadian return now is correct because they've adjusted it. What you have to do is go back and correct the US return. So the way it should have looked on the US return, you should have only pay a maximum of 15% on the US pension. And the way you do that is you use um, that form 1116, which is the foreign tax credit form on the US 1040. Um, and there's a bunch of different pools and different, um, uh, uh, not ways in which you do that form, but there's different, um, there's different pools of income for that one, 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 six foreign tax credit. So there's a general pool, there's a passive pool for investment. Um, and then there's a resource pool and a reason all the resource pool does is, uh, reduce, um, uh, specific amounts of tax on specific, um, income down to the treaty rate. So you would, you would claim a resource foreign tax credit on the U S return to get down to 15%. So if you do that, then the result should be, you pay 15% on the U S um, pension in the U S um, and then you pay whatever tax you pay in Canada and you get credit for 15%. So um, long story short, it looks like CRA likely made the right adjustment. Um, the accountant. So I, I would say the accounts, if that's the case, I would say the accountant's wrong. You, 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 I mean, it's not the, it's not even a fight with CRA at this point, um, it's just a matter of uh, adjusting the U.S. return. So it sounds like CRA is right. Once again, if if I got any of that wrong in terms of the fact pattern, let me know. But I think that's what um, what happened. Okay, so I think we've, we've answered that one. Um, okay, I'm just going to just keep checking the questions from the group if anybody has anything, but it looks like we're good. So let's move on to question number two. Okay, um, question number two. Can we claim uh, Canadian mortgage interest deduction on our American taxes. Uh, and then number two, how does the Canadian mortgage impact our taxes if at all? Okay. Um, we get this question a lot. Uh, this has changed a little bit. So, um, new tax changes only allow you to claim mortgage interest up to $750,000 of mortgage where it was a million dollars before, but honestly, I mean, this would be a different conversation for like domestic Americans, Americans living in, in the U S. But for Americans living in Canada, you know, so these deductions, you know, there's lots of deductions that happen on Schedule A. So this would be your itemized deductions. In a lot of cases, we don't bother because a lot of cases, you know, you're not going to end up paying U.S. tax anyway. So it doesn't really matter how much you drive down your U.S. tax because you have enough Canadian tax to offset any U.S. tax that you um that you pay. I mean, that's not always the case. You might have situations where in, in Canada, you, you know, have a really large RSP deduction that you don't get on the U S side. So that really drives down your Canadian tax. So you do want to find ways to, to reduce your U S tax. But in a lot of cases, we don't, we don't bother with mortgage interest deduction. It's just more time on, on the files um, and doesn't add any value. So, um, so I'd say in most cases, there's not an advantage. Um, unless your Canadian tax is really low. But if your Canadian tax is really low, it's, it's often that your US tax rate's low as well. Um, oh, and then number two, how does the Canadian mortgage impact your taxes at all? I mean, honestly, unless, I mean, I'm assuming this is on a principal residence. Unless it's it's on rental income, which you get a deduction for against other income, it probably doesn't, you know, we could get into, you know, converting the mortgage to be able to, to deduct it for investment purposes, but we're not going to get into that today. But likely doesn't impact taxes um, at all. Okay. Uh, Let's check here. Uh, Okay. Um, So there was a question just came in here from probably the previous question. Are distributions taken from a fixed annuity considered distributions? Yes, in most cases, from a fixed annuity would be considered distributions from a pension and would attract the same fifteen percent tax. So here, let me let me just um, uh, let me just circle back around to that. Um, So the fifteen percent will relate to US pensions paid to a Canadian resident, regardless of whether that individual is a US citizen. So it will be 15%, so it's gonna be a max of 15%. So if you're a non-resident of the US, uh, you don't file US tax returns, you're in Canada, you'll always have a 15% withholding on the taxable portion of the pension, because often there'll be a taxable portion and there'll be a non-taxable portion. So on the taxable portion of the pension, uh, and on the US side, you're gonna pay whatever US tax on your U S tax return, but only to a maximum of 15. So, um, for non-residents of the U S it'll always be 15 for American citizens or green card holders. It'll be, um, whatever your tax rate is U S up to a maximum of, of 15. Okay. Uh, let's see here. Uh, okay. Uh, another good question. Same as uh, U.S. social security pensions. No U S social security pensions are completely different. So in that case, U um, S social security is only taxable in the country where you're a resident. So for, you know, most of our clients are Americans living in Canada. So U S social security is only taxable on the Canadian return. And we put disclosures in the U S return, uh, to explain under the treaty, why, um, U.S. Social Security is only taxable in Canada. Uh, and that would be the inverse would be true. But if you're in the U.S. and you're claiming so, you're being taxed on Social Security, you're not often filing Canadian returns. So, uh, yeah, completely different, often no withholding at all on U.S. Social Security. Um, and then the difference being you're only taxed on 85% of your U.S. Social Security in in Canada. But in order for it not to be um, uh, taxable on the Um, on the u.s return you have to put in treaty elections Um, okay just reading somebody else anything else okay good question here okay so what happens if uh for a canadian resident a non-us person the u.s source pension um does not withhold any tax okay so this happens a lot so um, I mean, you want to avoid that if you can. So if you get, uh, if you're a Canadian resident, non U S person, um, and you get, um, if, and you get, um, payments from us pensions and they don't withhold, I mean, you want to avoid that. So make sure if, you know, you're going to be receiving uh, payments, make sure to ask them, um, to withhold taxes. And they're going to ask for that W eight Ben, uh, form. And if you're American, the W seven. Um, but if they don't, then you're the only way to correct that because it's not it's not often that I mean, it's often that they don't withhold sometimes they over withhold so if they over withhold or they under withhold, you have to file a 1040 nr so 1040 nr is a non resident US tax return, you would file that to pay the appropriate amount of US tax and then whatever tax taxes um, calculated on that return you get a credit for just like if it was withholdings. Okay, all right, thank you for those questions great questions. So let's move to the next. Um, let's move to the next question here. Okay, I recently inherited a U.S. IRA from my mother in the U.S. Can I transfer it to my RSP? Um, okay, so once again, assuming this individual lives in Canada, um, so inherited IRAs. Uh, so, so let me back up. So, th- there's an opportunity to convert or or roll or, or transfer. Um, US IRAs into an RSP. It can be tricky because generally speaking, you need an an amount of income equal to the amount you transfer. So let's say you inherit a $500,000 or not inherit. If you have a $500,000 IRA and you wanted to transfer it into your um, RSP, and let's say you made $100,000 a year, it would take about five years to do that transfer. So honestly, it's kind of a pain and it doesn't often um, provide a ton of value uh, but in cases of inherited IRAs, inherited IRAs uh, are not eligible for the transfer regardless. So, um, so in this case, um, this individual cannot uh, transfer the IRA to their RSP. Uh, so, so then the question is, you know, what are the options with uh, with IRAs? In most cases, I mean, if it's really, really small and your income's really, really low, like you might, you know, you inherit a $20,000 IRA and your income is really, um, uh, really low, perhaps it makes sense just to deregister it, pay the tax um, and move on. Um, but if it's a larger IRA, and especially if you have income, you really just want to stretch it out for as long as you can. You have 10 years now to to withdraw the funds from the inherited IRA. So I would say, you know, move it up to Canada with a good cross-border investment advisor, um, have them manage it up here and then slowly just, you know, pull the money out. You have 10 years, you know, max of 10 years to, to pull the money out. Um, and that way you can defer um, as much taxes as possible. Um, okay, let's check. I don't think we had any other questions on that one. And once again don't hesitate to give me some feedback if um if i'm going too fast or if the mic's it looks like the mic's working or, or anything else um would be appreciated okay so let's go to the next one here uh once again i haven't even looked at these in detail so um okay so what are your thoughts on a u.s person resident in canada holding a tfsa oh, okay such a popular question i do realize the income and capital gains are taxed on the 1040 and there's no ftc offset so that's foreign tax credit however in some circumstances the canadian tax savings may be worth owing some tax to the us depending on the overall tax situation what's your perspective okay so great question so um once again, TFSA's with Americans living in Canada have been a thorn in our side forever. Um, you know the TFSA account. I mean, you know that um, when that came in, I mean that that was an idea kind of uh, brought up from the U.S. for the you know similar to the the Roth IRA's. The problem with the TFSA's was a couple of problems. First, um, like this individual mentioned, TFSA's uh, are tax deferred, so any any income earned within the TFSA. Uh, um, is not tax deferred, but tax exempt from a Canadian standpoint, but not so for the U.S. So let's say you have a TFSA; it earns, you know, a thousand dollars of interest um, every year, um, and you're an American living in Canada. That thousand dollars is not taxed on the Canadian side, but it is taxable for U.S. purposes, just as if it was in a regular um, investment account. So this, um, and and then the second thing is, some make the argument. Um, or some consider the TFSA to be a foreign trust for U.S. purposes, and therefore we have those terrible 3520 forms. I'm not going to get into that today, but um, yeah, so 3520 form is a form to report, um, amongst other things, um, interest in a foreign trust, so a non-U.S. trust. Uh, So some people are doing 3520s for TFSAs. Some are making the argument that TFSA is not a foreign trust and therefore not doing 3520s, but there's still a risk because the IRS hasn't explicitly come out and and um and spoken on this matter i mean they're they're so busy with with other things i can't imagine they're going to get to this anytime soon so th- you know there's the risk but outside of the 3520 uh the one thing i do want to point out here um they say do i um i realize that income capital gains are taxed on the 1040 and no ftc off- offset which is well so uh, certainly the income is gonna be taxable on your 1040 but in some cases you actually might have foreign taxes paid on other investment income that was carried forward from previous years that you can offset um, because foreign tax credits carry forward on the US return. So just keep that in mind, you might have already a bunch of passive 1116, that's the foreign tax credit form um, available to offset that income. So if you were gonna make the argument that it wasn't a foreign trust, you're not doing 3520s and you had this big basket of um, uh, foreign tax credit carry forwards on the passive side, um, then you could offset that, um, that tax on that TFSA. Okay, um, I don't think we have any additional questions there, so let's just keep uh, moving on. Okay, so this one's a little bit lengthy. So, oh, and then like, I just wanted, some of these I actually did kind of break down and paraphrase because they were actually um, quite lengthy. Um, so if I if I took some stuff out of your, your question, that, that was the reason. Uh, I try to keep the same spirit of the question though. Okay, um, I moved back to Canada after working in the U.S. for many years on TN visa. I'm not a U.S. citizen or green card holder. Okay. As a new tax resident of Canada, I cannot keep my regular brokerage account in the U.S. Yep, true. Thus, I transferred my sizable stocks in kind to a Canadian brokerage. Okay. Um, I understand that my previous gains accumulated before I entered Canada are protected from Canadian tax, and there is an adjustment cost basis to my stocks to the fair market value. Yep. Um, can you clarify when the adjustment occurred to the FMB? Does this occur on the day I crossed the U.S.-Canada border um, or the FMB for the closing price of my share before the day it became red? Okay, so that might be a little bit confusing people. So so essentially what this individual is saying, and, and let me back up. So when you, when you move from the U.S. to Canada or on, uh, from anywhere to Canada, you're not going to be taxed. On any of your, unless it's Canadian real estate or other Canadian property, you're not going to be taxed on any accrued gains that you earned before you became a Canadian resident. So, you know, simple example you, you, you bought Apple stock when you lived in the US at $100 and now it's $200 and now you're um, moving to Canada. You move to Canada when Apple stock's $200 and you sell it immediately. Um, you pay no tax because you're going to get a bump in your cost base to fair market value. So, the gain from 100 to 200 is protected from Canadian tax. You will still have a gain in the US on the $100, but you essentially get a reset when you uh, li- uh, move to Canada for any accrued gains that you earned, um, not, not on things like pensions, but just regular investment accounts or, or US real estate uh, when you enter Canada. So th- they do that um, so that you're not taxed on, you know, many years of, of prior year gains. So this individual is asking, you know, what is the timing of that? Um, I mean, if you look at the tax act, you know, they say immediately before, um, and they don't mean the day, but they mean immediately before. So what we we tend to do, and, you know, in most cases is not going to make a difference. You just use the closing price on the day you become a Canadian resident and use those values um, as your fair market value when you enter. And that becomes your new cost base for Canadian purposes, um, which, which can actually be quite tricky because then that's why you know, I'm not a big fan of leaving investment accounts in the U.S., First, because a lot of the investments down there like muni bonds, you know, are not efficient for Canadian purposes, U- U.S. dividends often compared to Canadian dividends are not that efficient. Um, and then you have t uh, 35 uh, filings, but not only that, now you have a set of investments and statements you have a cost base in the U.S. that's different than the cost base in Canada. So you have to track cost bases on both sides. That's why planning for investments before moving to Canada is really important. Um, but yeah, to answer this question, I would just use the closing price on the day you move to um, Canada or not the day you move necessarily, but the day that you set up for your residence, which is often the same date. So the day you become a Canadian resident, that would be the day that you use the closing price for all your stocks um, to readjust your basis on the Canadian side. Okay, so hopefully I answered that. Um, let's see. Okay, it doesn't look like we have any other questions here. Okay um, yeah, I mean, this came in, in just as a, a subject to an email, but I, I, I did respond and ask if it was a question. So dealing with RSP slash IRA for expats living in Canada. So I think maybe they just want a general overview. Um, so let's, you know, let's say you have an RSP and you have an IRA. Uh, I mean, first, if, you know, if you're in your working years, you'll likely contribute to your RSP to reduce your Canadian tax. You won't get it. You won't get a, a deduction on your U.S. tax return for any for any RSP contributions, however, that won't really matter because we want to drive down Canadian tax as much as we can. And the IRA is either going to be from an inherited IRA or an IRA you had before you moved to Canada and then you moved up here. So the only thing I would say there is, um, you know, all things being equal, and this is not always the case because RIFs or RSPs will convert to RIFs, and and there's some other planning there. But you probably want to draw down on your RSP or RIF. Before your IRA, because your IRA can actually stay deferred as it is inherited down the chain to um, uh, to uh, other beneficiaries. So that's one of the, the the bigger advantages. When you pass away, you can roll your RSP to your spouse, uh, but when the last spouse passes away, that RSP comes into income. So that's not the case with IRAs. They can continue on and be tax deferred uh, to the next generation. Now they've capped that at ten years, but at least you get an extra ten years, which is a huge amount when when you're talking about compounding. Um, uh, going forward. So, I mean, you know, I'm not sure exactly what they wanted, um, uh, answered from this question, but it just gives you a good general overview of, um, IRAs versus RSPs. Okay. Uh, another question. Is there another question here? Uh, what about departing capital gains tax for us? Okay. Good question. So departing capital gains tax for USA. I think there's actually a question below here that, that, um, asks about that. So we'll, uh, I'll leave this for now and then we'll, um, circle back around to that question. Okay. Um, oh, oh, this looks like this is the question. Okay, there you go. Um, I moved I moved from Canada to US um, in August of 98. As required, I filed my departure notice to Revenue Canada for the stock I had and deemed a sold market to market price and paid capital gains tax. Um, so what they're saying there, when you leave Canada, your assets are deemed to be disposed as if you sold them, you pay your exit tax and then you are a non-resident of Canada. Now, when I sell the stock in the US, shall I use the market to market price as my cost base, makes sense to me, or the original acquisition cost um, years before the departure date? Okay, great question. Okay, so once again, when an individual becomes a non-resident of Canada and they leave Canada, they sever the ties and when they're actually considered a non-resident, which is different than you know an American moving to Canada, because Americans, by virtue of their citizenship, maintain taxation. Uh, so much different. So Canadian leaves, severs ties, becomes a non-resident of Canada. Uh, not all of your assets, because if you have Canadian real estate or some resource properties uh, or RSPs, uh, those are not deemed to be disposed. But just regular investment accounts um, are deemed to be disposed. So as if you know you um, you sold them. So once again, let's use a very simple example. You had Apple stock that you paid hundred dollars for. When you leave Canada, it's worth two hundred dollars. Um, when you leave Canada and you become a non-resident, that $100 of gain is fully taxed in that year that you leave. Now, the question they're asking is what happens, and, and you're assuming that you didn't actually sell the Apple stock, you're down in the US now, you still own uh, however many shares of um, of Apple stock uh, with original cost base of $100. Um, so they're asking now when I sell it, do I um, pay tax on the full $100 or um, or a different amount? Um, and, um, and there's some, there's some relief here. Um, it doesn't make a lot of sense and it doesn't seem very fair that you pay a hundred dollars of gain to the U S or to Canada. And a couple years later, you pay a hundred dollar gain to the U S with no offsetting foreign tax credit. So within the treaty, um, there, and let me think the, so article, uh, article third, article 13, paragraph seven, I think, I think that's right. Article 13, paragraph seven, um, uh, that paragraph outlines just this, where you can elect to be treated the same on the U.S. side as you were on the Canadian side. So essentially all that happens, it gives you a bump to your cost base on that Apple share to $200. So when you sell it, your new basis is $200. Um, if it goes above $200, you'll have U.S. tax, but um, you won't have to pay that tax on the original 100 Now you want to elect within your, and I'm not sure if this individual elected, he probably, you know, he or she didn't likely, but you're going to want to talk to somebody because you, you want to elect uh, under the treaty uh, to have that section apply with that treaty election form, the eight eight um, thirty three, um, and that's where you would you know, you put that form in the ten forty to explain what you're doing and what section of the um, the treaty um, that you're electing. So, uh, but yeah, but technically speaking, yes, you can get a bump for for that amount. Okay, so um, now, yeah, so the question that somebody had here: What about uh, departing capital gains for U.S. Was there anything else there that you wanted me to, um, to talk about? If, if so, just just drop it in, in the questions there. So I don't wanna, I don't wanna miss anything. Okay. Uh, okay, I inherited an account, which is the reason I'm pursuing this rather than filing my own, which I normally do. I believe there's a form I need to submit to Canada declaring my inheritance, but the form number escapes me at the moment. Okay. Okay, so it sounds like this individual uh, re- um, inherited um, an account uh, likely um, sounds like maybe from the U.S. Um, I'm going to assume it's from the U.S. And they're asking, like, what, um, what other forms um, do they need to file? So let's, and I don't have a lot of information for this question, but let's assume that it's just an inv- a regular investment account in the U.S. Uh, so in that case... Uh, they likely have T-1135 filings. So to the extent that you have over $100,000 of cost in um, non-US or non-Canadian investment accounts, you'll actually have to complete... um, Sorry, this thing keeps going off behind me. Um, You'll have to complete that 1135 form uh, for um, declaring the US investments. So that's likely the form they're talking about. In the case of a trust, if the... um, if the individual uh, inherited an amount that was part of a trust, and they received distributions from that trust, whether capital or um, or income, then there would be a T eleven forty two form, which is um, a foreign uh, trust distri- uh, distribution form. So it could be the T eleven thirty five or the T eleven forty two that they're they're talking about. That's like, but we don't have we don't have like a, a gift tax. Um, Form or um, or disclosures for the Canadian side. So once again, if you know, I may mean, I not have a lot of information for some of these questions. Um, if that's not one hundred percent clear, feel free to email me. Whoever um, sent in this question. Okay. Um, okay. So this is okay. So this was just a follow up to the deemed disposition. Turning the question around: When depart permanently from U.S. to Canada. Do I have to pay mark to market as deemed disposed? Okay, so yeah, so the good question. So um, going the other way, when you move from the U.S. to Canada, now, once again, it depends. If you're a U.S. citizen, you're gonna continue filing in the U.S. So no, there's nothing that happens necessarily. I mean, there's planning that has to happen, but there's no deemed disposition of assets. Um, if, if you're um, giving up your green card, or if you're on a visa down there, it really depends, and we can't get into that today. But um, you know, you might if you if you're expatriating. There's certainly some some implications. If you're under two million in, in net worth, there are less implications, um, and it depends on whether you're a long-term resident in the U.S. But if I'm if 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 I'm assuming you're a U.S. person, um, there's there's no immediate consequences, but there's a bunch of planning for investments uh, before you uh, move to Canada. The worst thing you can do is move to Canada, wait a couple months, and then try to find a cross-border um, planner, and then uh, try to plan. You want to plan before you become a, a Canadian resident, uh, for sure, because a lot of the planning mechanisms don't um, aren't available once you become a resident of um, of Canada, you know, things like Roth IRA conversions and, and whatnot. Okay. Uh, oh, now there's another one come in here. Um, no, that's the... Um... Oh, okay, idea yeah, was a follow up to the TOD. Um, the, the transfer on death essentially means the beneficiary has been named uh, on a non registered account, which is the same thing, just inheriting a non registered account would be um, uh, the same thing. So, if it's in the US and you have US assets, um, then it would be a T1135 filing, uh, to report the assets. I mean, that's just one you know, that's one part of it. You'd actually have to. Um, make sure the withholdings are appropriate on there. I'm not sure if this is for a U.S. person or not. Um, And then, and then planning around that investment account. Okay. Um, Make sure I don't miss anybody here. Okay. So let's try. How are we doing for time? Okay. Not bad here. I'm not, honestly, I don't know um, how long we'll go here, but um, I don't mind sticking around for as long as I can if people have questions. So, um, okay. So next question here. Uh, I'll be doing my cross-border taxes for the first time by myself and just wanted to hear what type of advice you can give me. Thanks for doing this. Thank you for the question. Um, well, the answer to this question is probably don't. Um, and I know that's tough for a lot of people. I mean, I, 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 I you know, I wish there was a, a way, especially for simple returns, for people to really do them well on their own. But this is analogous to like, honestly, me trying to you know, change the brakes in my car. It's 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 so difficult to do properly and it requires so much experience because everybody's situation is so different. That being said, if your situation is so straightforward where you might have a T4 um, uh, for employment income and that's all you have, um, it's certainly doable. You might, you know, you do your Canadian return with Canadian tax software. You do um, your U.S. return with, um, uh, whatever us software that you've, you can find, and you have a 2555, um, uh, earned income exclusion. So there's really no calculation at all, other than, you know, an in and out of the, uh, employment income on the 1040. And then once again, and this is assuming you have no investments, you make sure you do your F bars properly because F bars done incorrectly or filed late can be, um, can be terrible. Um, so certainly dual, but once you, once you, when you have rental income, you have investments, you have other deductions, it becomes, it just becomes tricky. So, you know, there's certainly options. So if you want to do it yourself, there's, you know, you can, you know, um, uh, there's really no, there's no program that does both of them together, uh, no retail program and not even a professional program. Like in the office, we use separate Canadian, um, tax software and separate us tax software. And the two don't communicate with each other at all. Um, and you know, we get this question all the time. Why does somebody not design that? Um, and gr- great question. I mean, it's just the, mar- the market's probably too small and what would be required to do that would be enormous, even for software engineers, cause they'd need the tax side and the software side. But, um, so if you're going to do it yourself, you would have to have two separate pieces of software. Um, and there are, there are actually, um, uh, services out there like, um, like Marcus at, uh, XPAC my expat tax taxes. Those guys are, are great. Um, however, I mean, f- for simple returns, I wouldn't do anything complex with them, but, but, um, that's another option. So check them out there. Um, um, I've heard good things, but I haven't tried any of their, um, uh, their software packages. Okay. Um, just looking at
1: some questions that have come in here.
0: Okay, so just that's quite a few here. So I'm just going to keep going with some of the questions that come in um, earlier. Okay. Okay. Next question: If a group of foreign persons sold the U.S. property, but only one person receives the IRS-stamped copy B of Form 8288A with the total proceeds withholding included, uh, is it okay for the individual seller to fi- file the U.S. 1040? To retrieve any potential refund and later divide it amongst the other sellers or will the 8288 A and B be amended to include the sellers? Okay, um, so what this individual is talking about, they sold a property in the US and when they sell a property in the US, um, there's withholdings that happen on the US side that go to the IRS and they do that to make sure that you file a tax return. And we actually see, I've, I've seen this quite a bit over the last couple of years here. Um, especially leading like um maybe not last couple years but specifically after 2008 when u.s um housing uh, market recovered after the first crash um, and a lot of canadians bought down in the u.s when um uh, when the rate was at par um so i would say i mean it's probably too late now you want to get them to amend this if you catch it early enough because it can be a huge pain so they're saying let's say you know uh two individuals let's say it's spouses you know purchase a property um and they, because um, when you file as a non-resident in the U.S., I'm assuming these are, you know, these are not U.S. persons. Um, when you file um, uh, as a non-resident, uh, you file separate returns, and you don't have joint filing in the U.S. So let's say you know they sold a property in the U.S. and they withheld twenty thousand dollars. They'll often do the eighty-two eighty-eight on one uh, for one person, and then put the twenty thousand dollars to their IRS account. But you're going to be filing two tax returns and claiming. You want to claim ten thousand dollars on each tax return. So when you file the tax returns and you claim the ten thousand, they need to see that eighty-two, eighty-eight disclosure on the returns in order to give you credit for the um, ten thousand. So we've seen it a bunch of ways. In some cases, you can just put the full amount of the twenty thousand on one return and get the refund. Um, I've I've split it before and put in a, a cover letter. Each is so different. I would just say you know the lesson here is probably if you can get them to amend it quickly. I would, if it's gone on and it's already at the IRS, um, you might want to put a cover letter on there. I mean, the, the cases I'm thinking of, we had to go back and forth quite a bit um, to get it resolved. So, you, you know, the, the lesson here is, is, you want to get those forms completed um, accurately first, because getting it done after the fact can be a real pain. Okay. Um, okay. It looks like everybody's good there. Okay, so we're getting through lots of questions. Let's see what else we have next here. Um, and once again, you know, I you know I've done this as as a test for me to really get used to the the streaming software. Um, and as, as you can see here, I, I wasn't able to even get the um, yeah the YouTube thing's not working, but that's okay. Uh, but in subsequent ones, I'll actually I'll have a a topic and run through some slides that'll be a little bit more focused. Um, and then um, I have some, some guests lined up, which is gonna be great, some immigration attorneys, um, some other tax people, some investment people. So um, should be some stuff really to look forward to here in the, in the coming months. Okay, um, I'll be moving permanently back to Canada within a year when I sell my house in Arizona and transfer the funds from the sale to Canada. What are the Canadian tax implications on this money, including the money I made from the favorable exchange rate? Okay. So this is this is um, this is similar to what we we talked about um, a, a few minutes ago. So, assuming the sale happens, um, and is it very clear here? Uh, when I sell my house, if the sale happens before you move to Canada, there won't really be any Canadian implications. But let's assume you sell it after you move to Canada and become a resident. So you'll get the same bump. So you'll get the you know the fair market value of the Arizona property when you enter Canada. Um, Will be your new cost basis. So unless, and it's it, it's it's much more difficult with real estate compared to stocks. With stocks, you know you can see the difference in value. Let's say if you moved in in November first to November thirtieth, you can you you know what the the change in value was. For real property is very difficult. So, you know, assuming the Arizona property didn't move in value from the time you moved to Canada, there might be a small gain, um, and that's where the foreign exchange can kick in too. And it, it might just be you know you, you might have a um, again, just because of the way the foreign tax, um, exchange rate moved. Uh, but you know, if, if you did actually sell it before really no implications and then moving money, um, is a completely, you know, different conversation. Um, and a lot of times with moving money, you know, the question we get a lot is, you know, how do I get a favorable exchange rate? Um, and there, there's certainly some places online. The best way is, you know, if you have a good investment advisor up here, especially cross border, they can get, you know, spot rates for, um, exchange. I would certainly stay away from the banks just because the big banks, the spreads on those exchange rates are are horrendous, uh, especially with large sums of money. Anything over a hundred thousand or even maybe even over fifty thousand, I wouldn't use, I would never use a bank rate. Um it's um yeah, it's it's terrible what they're what they're charging, especially when they have access to you know the most liquid pools of foreign exchange. So okay. Um so let's see, any other questions come in here? Um Okay. Uh, good question here. Um, regarding moving from the U S to Canada, I believe the U S person can still hold U S the U S brokerage account, but only able to sell stocks and not buy anymore. Is that true? On the other hand, if one could find a stock broker that has both Canadian U S licenses, and then one can still trade U S account. Is that true? Um, yeah. I mean, it's getting a lot more difficult. So if you, you know, I always use the example of fidelity, you know, you know, pushing out clients very quickly and liquidating things. Um, yeah. The U S brokerage accounts or brokers don't want to hold anything. And they're not for the most part, not allowed to hold investment accounts for Canadian residents. And in some cases they might be able to have them down there, but then they can't trade on them. So that's, I mean, that's a terrible way to even have an account down there. Cause a lot of times, you know, the investments in there don't work well for Canadian purposes. So almost always it makes sense to transfer them up to a cross border advisor that can, um, that can help. Um, and if you're going to do it yourself, then, you know, you, you know, use something like interactive brokers. If, um, if, if you are managing your own, um, your own money. Um, what's the second part of that question? Um, yeah. Oh yeah. And then, then, and then just, I mean, we get this all the time. Well, what if I put you know, my sister or brother or parents, you know, US address on the US account. Well, all you're doing there is lying on a form and you don't wanna do that, especially if the advisor down there has told you to do that. I, I hear that all the time, that's terrible advice. I mean, you're, you're essentially, you're lying on a form, on an investment form to keep it down there when they can't even manage the the funds legally. So so don't do that. So reach out to a good cross-border investment advisor because, um, and not only that, you might have, like I always say, you know, you'll have muni bonds down there perhaps, you know, there's nothing wrong with US dividends, but in a lot of cases, you know, the Canadian dividends might be more tax efficient. So you want somebody to look at it from a Canadian perspective because so many uh, portfolios that I look at, look at have, um, um, you know, muni bond interest is a great example, right? Tax-free in the US, not tax-free in Canada. So the value of the muni bonds is completely wiped out or even investments with capital gains distributions on the US side that are treated as straight income on the Canadian side, so tax inefficient. Um, and you wouldn't know it until somebody looked at it um, and, and went through and, and kind of showed you the difference in, in tax that you'd be paying in Canada versus um, the US in a brokerage account. Um, okay, just going through here. Okay, thank you for the questions. All right, we're getting through quite a few here. Time's up. Okay, all right. And nobody's dropped off yet, so that's that's good news. All right. I know some of this stuff can be um, quite dry, but um, uh, it can also it can also be quite educational if, if these are the questions you're you're uh, asking. Okay. So next question here, um, from the perspective of a typical cross-border couple who are already a Canadian resident and contemplating retiring in Ontario in the next couple of years, what would likely be the most tax-efficient way to sequence the drawdown of the U.S. In um, Canadian financial assets, 401k, IRA, Roth, RSP, RIF, U.S. investments, Canadian investments. Okay, good question. Get this all the time. I mean, first thing I would say is, um, I mean, you want to plan for this before you're doing any drawdown, right? So if you're moving to Canada from the U.S., you want to look at all the investments. There might be some investments that you sell before you enter Canada. You might you know convert some of your Roth to or some of your IRA to a Roth. Uh, you might convert your 401k to an IRA, there might be a bunch of things you and you need to do that before you become a Canadian resident. So just make sure that you're doing that planning before, um, before you move to Canada. Um, but just generally speaking, because ter- the question is, you know, the sequence of drawdowns, and this is this is very general um, advice. Um, but you want to probably pull from you know the RIF accounts first, um, and potentially the, U- the you know the, the the non-registered investment accounts, you know the ones that um, uh, that are after tax, um, because the Roth and the IRAs are the ones that you know if inherited by um, by children can um, can be you know, deferred for another 10 years. So those are the ones cause all these investments can roll to the spouse tax free. So, you know, once the second spouse passes away, if you still have the Ross and the IRAs and those haven't been drawn down as much, you know, you, you, are always going to have your minimum withdrawal. So that's, you know, that's going to be that, you know, something you're going to have to take regardless. But um, if you have a choice, you want to keep those accounts intact and let them just compound and grow over, over time. Once again, compounding over 10 years makes just a huge, a a, a huge difference. So, um, and once again, you know, you know, they'll have to, you know, even when, even if they have to withdraw those funds, you know, um, if the kids have to withdraw the funds in 10 years, it might be that they're in a much lower tax bracket than you anyways, and they reinvest those funds in RSPs or whatever, and you continue with that, um, uh, that compounding growth. So um, it's kind of a, a general, you know, Uh, answer that question, but it's hard to get into the specifics without really sitting down and and doing full planning. Okay. These are all great questions. Thank you all for sending them. These these are amazing. Okay. Um, Can I keep all my investments in the U.S. if I became a Canadian resident? I have dual citizenship, Canada, U.S., are there tax consequences? So we've already talked about this. I wouldn't keep them in the U.S. because, I mean, the question is, like, what's the... You know, what's the what's the value or what's the advantage of keeping them in the US? I mean, maybe if you're managing your own funds and, and you really understand it, but the problem with having the US investments in the US, especially if they're managed by a US investor, they likely have no conception of Canadian tax, which is fair enough. I mean I, you know, I don't wouldn't expect anybody to the conception of Canadian tax or planning. So a lot of things are being left on the table. Um uh and the way in which those portfolios are are designed are likely not um great from a Canadian perspective, but and then, and and then most U.S. brokerages cannot even hold um, non uh, non-registered uh, investment accounts for Canadian residents anyway. So, uh, but we yeah we touched on that quite a bit in previous questions. Okay, let's try this question here. U.S. investor has been told ITIN is expiring, but need to file for rental income. How to quickly how to quickly to renew without giving up passport? Uh so we can file quickly. Um can a can he do in contract consulting in the US? Oh, okay. So essentially what this person's asking is how do they renew their ITIN, I think. So um to the extent that you're not um, a U.S. person or a green card holder or, or um, a U.S. citizen, you uh, you you know you, you have a social security number, but if you need to file a U.S. tax return, so you might have, let's say you have a, a property in Arizona or um, you know rental property anywhere in the U.S. and you're filing 1040 NRs, um, they're going to give you an individual tax identification number. Um, so what happens a lot of times, these ITINs, they expire and you have to renew them. I mean, one of the reasons for this many years ago, um People were fraudulently you know, uh, uh, claiming dependence on 1040 returns um, and collecting huge amounts of refunds. So um, they've had a lot of these ITNs expire automatically, uh, but a lot of times when people have to continue filing, they need to renew them. So I would say you can renew them um, without a tax return. So the, the best way to renew an ITN is just to file it with the tax return. Uh, but what they're asking here is, um, they don't wanna give up their passport. So one way of doing it, which I would never recommend is to send in the, um, the uh, W7 application, which is the uh, application for um, renewing or just getting a, new, um, uh, a brand new item and you need to show identification. So one of the options is to package up the W7 with your passport and send it off to them in the mail. So, and then they, they actually do send it back to you, but I would never risk having my passport in the mail. Um, so what you can do is you can actually just go down to the passport office. And I know, I mean, it's been tricky because the passport office has been so busy lately, but um, you can go down to the Canadian passport office. You can get a, um, uh, a certified copy of the passport so what they'll do they'll take a copy they'll certify it and that can go down with the w7 to get the item so that's probably the best um that certainly will be the the best option you don't want to you don't want to throw your passport in the in the mail and hope it comes back uh, especially with all the lineups at the passport office okay let's see what's next so like jeopardy here all right um I don't know if this even fits, but I'm thinking of taking my social security next year when I turn 62. I also thought about taking my CPP now. Since I'm unable to work anymore and it's only a few hundred dollars, do I need to do both at the same time? Uh, Okay, you you don't need to do both at the same time. Um, You know, the longer you wait, the more you'll you'll get if you defer both CPP and and social security. Uh, The only thing I would say there is just know that your social security can be reduced. Um, and we won't get into the calculation here by your CPP. Uh, so the best way to actually work that out is actually to call the social security administration and say, okay, well, I'm thinking about taking social security. I'll be taking CPP as well and just see how much your social security will be ground down by the, um, um by the, the social security rules. Um, once again, it's kind of a topic you can get down to the weeds in, but, um, yeah, you you can certainly do both at the same time. Just just know that your social security will get ground down by your uh, 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 your social security get ground down by your CPP, uh, not necessarily dollar for dollar, but uh, they can tell you the calculation at the department. Okay. Um... Okay. Curious. Um, curious if there's a fairly comprehensive list somewhere, tax related questions, people looking to re- relocate from the U S to Canada should get answers to go before we go a place to begin where those of us know, we don't know where to begin. Fair enough. Uh, what questions we should be looking for and who to go to to ask for, uh, various questions. Okay. Great question. Um, well, I would say, I mean, there's not a lot of great places cause it's such a niche, specialization, I would say, um, you know, my blog has a ton of Q and A's and, and articles on, uh, moving to Canada from the U S. So that would be a good place to start. Um, so philhogan.com. Um, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to try to do better to maybe try to organize this in, you know, in, in, um, in some of the resource, um, pages, but, um, you know, you can search on here and and there's, you know, there's years and years of, of articles. The YouTube page, um, has a bunch of podcasts and and videos related to, um, uh, just what you're asking there. Um, one good place. And I actually saw this question. I just put this up here. Um, Phil Hodgen, which is interesting, not Phil Hogan, Phil Hodgen, um, is another cross border lawyer or, or a cross border lawyer. Um, and his site is absolutely amazing. He he he's been doing this for a long time, um, and the amount of educational information he puts out on this um, this website is is great. It's quite technical, uh, but I would suggest this one. Um, search through this. He has uh, great content. Uh, really really knows this stuff. He's been doing it for a long time, uh, and the resources on this this website are just absolutely phenomenal. Um, there's some other. I mean, off the top of my head. If you Google the Serbinsky forum, that's a forum with Q A's that, um, has actually been around for a long time. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's tough. It's, I mean, it's, it's just kind of a hodgepodge of articles and there's no real big guides out there. There's actually, there's, there's some decent books, and I don't know how, how updated they've been, but there's some books, um, like uh, moving to Canada or Americans in Canada that were written by some of the tax professionals back in the day. You might want to check those out, but, um, yeah. Oh, yes. And then, of course, uh, uh, our Facebook page, Americans in Canada Facebook page will be a link at the at the end here. That's a great place to, to ask your questions because the community there has been absolutely amazing. Um, I mean, I try to answer some of the questions, but um, it's it's um, it's tough. But, you know, a lot of people are giving good answers to um, a lot of the questions, especially when they relate to maybe non- tax items, but just moving to Canada in general. So that's a great place to um, ask your question. I'd spend a lot of time trying to moderate that, to keep spam out. Uh, But once again, the community has been absolutely amazing. I'm sure a lot of you um, on uh, the stream today uh, are part of that group. Um, So yeah, ask your question there because um, yeah, that that group has been great. Okay, so uh, let's see what we have next. okay i'm a canadian who married an american and moved to the us in 86 my husband passed away in 2015 and i'm considering moving back to vancouver or toronto i would be living on investment income or digging into principal. from listening to your show i believe i need to file in effect sell on all of my investments and repurchase them the day after moving right okay well no that's not right i don't think i've ever said to sell all your investments um and repurchase them after moving they might be thinking like the actual um the actual language in the in in the tax act is that you're deemed to have purchased and resold uh, but that's usually on um you know um or th- that's on the way in in into Canada. so you, you know purchased and um or sell and, and repurchase but yeah i would never advise anybody to sell all their investments and then repurchase them when they when they move to Canada. Um, a lot of times, what we'll do is we'll, you know look at por- portfolios. Some things um, you might want to sell. Some investments can't be held in a you know, Canadian brokerage account because let's say they're proprietary to, you know, Fidelity or, or UBS, some some specific firm. Um, but you certainly want to do planning. You want to do planning for the investments before you move to Canada, because um, a big part of that is you know we talk about this a lot. You know the 1135 filing um, to the extent that you have U.S. Investments in the US and you're a Canadian resident, you have, you will have terrible 1135 filing. So essentially every line of every statement will have to be disclosed on that uh, foreign disclosure, that T1135 form, if the assets remain in the US versus lumping them all into one group, if they're in a Canadian uh, brokerage account. So, um, yeah, so the lesson here is just make sure you do planning for your investments before you move to Canada. But no, you're not gonna to have to sell everything and repurchase it after moving. You can easily move investments up in kind from US investment accounts to uh, Canadian investment accounts. Once again, you wanna do that with a good cross-border team, but um, yeah, you won't have to sell everything and repurchase. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, so it looks like that's the the last question I have on here. Um, It doesn't look like there's a lot of questions coming in here. Does anybody else have any specific questions on this that they want to ask? I do have, um, I did have some questions come in. So maybe what I can do, I can look to see.
1: Okay, so
0: this morning we had some people join. Oh, there's even more here now. So let's see. Oh, wow, that's a long question. Okay, so I have one that's very lengthy that it'll be probably too much to even read through for the group or for the group here. See if there's anything quick I can...
1: And these are just people registering. Okay.
0: Yeah, and it's, it, there's some questions about foreign trusts. Um, grantor, non-grantor trust. I'm not going to get into that today. That stuff is so technical and it requires so much planning. I would say if you have a, you know, foreign trust issues like reach out, um, you know, we often require, we often need, you know, to get some tax, um, some cross-border tax lawyers involved to um, uh, redo some of these trusts or move, you know, um, assets out of the trust um, into uh, personal names. Um, We work with some really good Cross-border um, lawyers in, in Vancouver. Unfortunately, in Victoria, we don't have a ton of cross-border lawyers to help, but um, we certainly have um, some some good lawyers over in um, in Vancouver. Yeah, if any, and if anybody's looking, I would reach out to um, Christine Muckle at Legacy Tax in Vancouver. So big shout out to Christine Muckle. She she's great. She's helped lots of my clients. Absolutely amazing been in the game for, um, for a long time, doing very specific cross-border work. So if anybody needs help with, um, uh, with their, their foreign trusts or, um, uh, legal, um, estate planning, she's, um, she's great. I mean, on the tax side, you want to kind of bring in the whole group, but, um, and if anybody needs a referral, just reach out to me at phil at philhogan.com and I can, I can help. Okay. Um, oh, there were some other questions here that came in. Um, Okay so good question um how does canada treat us health saving plans do these qualify for deferral yeah i mean unless something has come out in recent times here i those are not deferred for canadian purposes so just straight investment accounts so anything earned within the hsa so those can be a pain because they can be quite beneficial for people especially when they move back up uh, but those should be fully taxable for canadian purposes um Okay, who are some good cross-border teams to manage investments for Americans in Canada, per, um, preferably fee for service or low AUM? Okay, I mean, um, I, I would say if anybody if anybody needs a referral, I mean, we work a lot with some teams at Raymond James that are absolutely great uh, and have been doing this for a long time and very specific to that. So I would say, because um, that question is, is very specific to that kind of cross-border team to manage investment. So if you... If you need help with um, uh, managing your cross-border investments, just send me an email and I can kind of tag in, I can tag in the team. So um, I think that's what you're you're asking. Thank you, Mark. That's that's great, great question. Um, what obligations remaining U.S. person but permanently living in Canada as a Canadian ci- citizen? Uh, what does that mean? What obligations remaining U.S. person but permanently living in Canada as a Canadian citizen. Are, are, are you asking what are the obligations for a U.S. citizen living in, in Canada? I mean, if you're asking that question, then um, yeah. I mean, if you, if you haven't renounced your U.S. citizenship, which you know most of my clients haven't renounced their U.S. citizenship, um, you'll have U.S. tax returns to do. So generally speaking, it looks like you have a Canadian return every year. You have U.S. tax return every year, and then you have a um Um, Then you have uh, your FBAR filings and all the other disclosures, you might have T1135 filings. Um, So yeah, you'll be taxable on the Canadian and US side. Um, Not necessarily means you're paying US tax, just means you have to file in in both countries. Um, Okay, managing all the costs involved in index investing any benefits using US ETFs versus Canadian ETFs and non-registered accounts? Overall, is it better to build my own ETF with Canadian stocks? Oh, that's such a loaded question. Um, So generally speaking, the reason it's challenging to try to build these like your own portfolio of of US and Canadian stocks, um, because a lot of times people are doing that to avoid PFIC reporting, which honestly doesn't have to be that difficult if you don't have 30 or 40 mutual funds. It becomes difficult when you're First, when you have you know portfolio full of Canadian mutual funds that don't have QEF statements, qualifying electing fund statements, um, then you have a lot of 8621s to complete. But if, if if the portfolios are structured properly with one or two diversified global you know, ETFs um, that, that are considered PFIX. Um, that's probably much better than trying to develop a whole portfolio of individual stocks. And the reason for that, and I'm not opposed to individual stocks at all, but the reason for that is when you start disposing of these stocks, you have to, uh, you know, on the Canadian side, it's easy, you know, that you might get, you know, a, a gain loss report shows you, you know, $30,000 or you know, whatever your gain is for the year, you report that on your Canadian return. But for US purposes, you actually have to, um, uh, you have to convert all those to U S dollars. And it's not as simple as like, you know, I have a $30,000 gain in Canada, you know, $30,000 divided by the exchange rate for that year. That's not how that works. You have to convert at the day you purchase, you have to convert at the day you sell. And the difference is, you know, your gain or loss. And then you also have to factor in the foreign exchange. Um, So we have huge Excel models that we use in in the office to do this, that, you know, you know, we input all this stuff and then it calculates, it's a ton of time. Um, So I would say if you have, you know if, if if you have a portfolio you know, there's going to be transactions in it i'd be very careful about you know individual stocks because of the work required to do it now some people would say oh i you know i do this and it's fine almost in every single case i see like it's fine because they're not they're not doing it properly they're not converting the canadian gains properly to us so just be very careful about doing that um and so then, you know, the, the other part of the question, US ETFs versus Canadian ETFs, yeah, if it's a US ETF, then you don't have PFIC uh, reporting requirements. And that's fine um, if you're comfortable with, you know, that, you know, how, how to, you know, if you're, if that's how you're developing your portfolio. But once again, that's you now that, that, you know, that's really somebody that's managing their own money and very comfortable doing that. Uh, but yeah, that's one way to get out of PPIC reporting. I don't know if it's the reason to own US ETFs, because, you know, you really have to make sure that you manage um, foreign exchange, uh, fluctuation and and look at, look, look at, you know, recent example, you know, we went from like a buck 25 to almost a buck 40 on the U S return on the U S dollar, um, within a couple months. Right. Um, so depending on what you're going to be doing, you know, um, with your, your portfolio, um, I mean, that's a huge swing now that might work out in your favor, but it also might not so if you're going to do it just be very comfortable knowing that you actually um can manage the funds yourself and then and then the foreign currency risk as well i mean you know there's ways to hedge it and whatnot but i mean those are pretty specific um um, skill sets so um okay
1: so let's see here um
0: Okay, so a question. Okay, some some covered expats are subject to exit tax if they meet certain conditions. Um, does this only apply to U.S. citizen green card holders, for example, Canadian citizen worked in the U.S. for 20-plus years but never became a green card holder? Are they exempt? Yeah, so, you know, and this, I mean, we go down the rabbit hole with this, um, and we want to be careful about answering any questions about covered expats. But, yeah, if you weren't, um, you have to be considered a long-term resident, so ADA lasts 15 years. But that shouldn't apply to anybody that was not a green card holder. So you actually have to be a green card holder. But I would say if you're dealing with any expatriation covered expat stuff, you want to reach out and talk to somebody and really flush out these answers because um, you, you don't want to get that wrong, um, especially for expatriation purposes. It can, it can get quite technical. But yeah, if you're not a US, if you're not a green card holder, you shouldn't be considered a long-term resident. Um, that's probably the, the short answer there. Okay, so I do it doesn't look like there's any new questions coming in. This might be the time to wrap
1: it up, but what I'll do here, okay,
0: um, uh, oh, there are more questions, okay. see here, uh, which line on form 1040 declare my election for the stock that I bumped up to cost base when I left Canada and which treaty number and paragraph again. Uh, so, so that's it's not really a line item that's you're electing under the treaty. So it's um, and once again, this is not professional advice. You want to you want to sit down with somebody and, and work through this properly. But um, that, that's form 8833, 8833 is the treaty election form. Um, and it should be par- it should be Article 13 of the Treaty, paragraph um, uh, paragraph seven. So make sure you um, l- l- uh, look that up to make sure. I, I think that's the the, the right paragraph. Um, let's see what else we have here. Uh, on a Canadian POA, if a U.S. person is named as an alternate or successive attorney, is FBAR required? I know. Filing is required if a U.S. person's name as an attorney. Uh, you know, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I, I mean, so FBAR filing will only relate to U.S. persons and it will only relate to U.S. persons that have ownership or signing authority over an account. So if it's not a U.S. person, likely not, but you want to run down the chain with that and, and be very careful because if it's if you're a POA for a U.S. person, I would say you're going to want to get some advice about that, especially if you have significant uh, significant accounts. It's interesting. Um, I mean, we certainly have POAs, but it's usually individuals that are already US citizens. Uh, you, you know, it might be a um, a child who's a POA for their, their parents, but they're all US citizens. So good question. But um, yeah, you want to probably get some follow-up with that. Um, okay, you're welcome. You're welcome. Um, okay. Uh, will the TFSA result in US trust F FBAR filings? Okay, so we did touch on this a little bit. You know, if you're making the argument that the TFSA is not a foreign trust, then you won't have foreign trust filings. So those 3520s, but some people are still doing those. So that's still a point of contention in the um, in the industry here. Um, IRS hasn't really ruled on it. So um, that's a conversation you want to have with your tax professional, whether you're going to consider the TFSA a foreign trust or not. If you do consider it a foreign trust, you likely have 3520 filings, uh, but certainly you, it, it's included on the FBAR. So all those accounts are included on your FBAR. So your RSPs are included on your FBAR, your um, your TFSAs, your uh, Canadian investment accounts, your Canadian bank accounts. Yeah, so TFSA certainly included on the FBAR. Um, Canadian resident staying in the US longer than 183 days. Has there been some change of the calculation for filing US? It seems to remember a change to Snowbird rules. Um, it was interesting because we just put up a. Um, uh, I mean, the snowboard rule changes, uh, I, I think, related to COVID. It's interesting. We don't do a lot of snowboard returns at all um, on that side. It's mainly just Americans coming into Canada and, and very, very few people kind of going down, uh, snowbirds even just moving down to the US. But um, so there's two things there's the um, substantial presence test. So I actually designed a calculator on the website. So if you go to um, the website under resources, uh, or just I would just Google uh, Phil Hogan um, um, substantial presence calculator. Um, but if you're over 183 days, um, that will be different than actually being a substantial presence um, individual for the 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 th- three years. So. Um, I'm not sure if I really answered your your, your question there. Um, maybe just maybe just shoot me an email with the with set of fact patterns and I can I'll I'll do my best to help there. I'm trying to if I if I'm not really answering these questions um, in totality, I, I don't want to leave anybody hanging. So just shoot me a, a, an email on that. Uh, let's see here. Okay. TFC. If I want to open a TFC with US cash deposits, how do I ensure I do not run over my TFC limit? How documents how to document to make sure I'm not over my lifelong TFSA. Okay, well, that, and that's a really good question. I mean, that's um, that's tricky because, well, I don't know if it's tricky because when you deposit to the TFSA, they will, on their end, they will convert an amount to Canadian because they have to be tracking that balance, if that's what you're asking. Um, they must be doing that at the brokerage side because that's the only way for them to know that you've either gone above or below your limit because it's being tracked. So they probably do it. They probably do it on the day that the amount goes in there. So they probably do it on the exchange rate, the day, the exchange rate on the day you actually um, deposit the money to the TFSA, but that's a good question. I don't know if I've ever run into that. Um, I don't know for sure, but I, I think it's, I think it's probably on the day that you deposit it. Um, um I'm a trustee and beneficiary of a Canadian family trust. Do I have 3520 filings in the U.S. as a U.S. resident alien? Um, oh, I would, yeah, I would say likely yes. And once again, if we're not going to get into the the weeds of 3520s, I mean, honestly, we try to stay away from as much of those filings as possible. And the reason for that um, is a good example. You go through like the instructions on a form like that. Even the IRS doesn't even know the answers to some of these questions on on the form themselves that they've developed so it, it's just there's so much risk in those forms but i would say um it sounds like yeah if you're if you're a u.s resident with and in your beneficiary and, and and trustee i mean yeah the one of those would probably kick you over unless as a beneficiary you didn't receive a distribution for 3520 filings and 3520A. Uh, but yeah if you're a u.s resident i would say yes without any further information yeah yeah um, Okay. All right. So looks like, Oh, another one. Okay. And no, oh, I think they're answering that question. No distributions. Uh, yeah. But if you're the trustee and it, once again, you can go down to the weeds with this, but um, it depends on whether you're considered an owner or not. It's something you're really going to have to probably get some advice on. It's not something we can probably delve into today. And I, I hate that because it's, you know, I, I do want to be helpful, but the 3520s are just, um, they're just a minefield. Um, okay, uh, following up somebody else previously. If I'm a POA for a parent with signing authority, I don't use it, but it's there. As a US resident alien, Canadian says, will I be subject to any violence? Okay, so that's a good example of like, if you're POA and you have signing authority over um, any non-US account, and that accounts over, you know the highest balance and aggregate it's over $10,000, you you likely have um, um, F bar filings. I mean, you might have. I mean, if, if you don't have ownership over the or beneficial ownership over the account, um, the income will be taxed somewhere else. But yes, yeah, certainly, it sounds like F bar filings for sure. And for everybody, um, I mean, there's been some court cases, some pretty scary court cases that have come out recently about this. But for anybody doing their own U.S. return, make sure on that Schedule B where you're reporting your investment income for U.S. purposes. There's those questions at the bottom. Uh, do i have interest in a foreign account you know am i filing um, f bars and you know what country they located and then 3520 question make sure to answer those questions there was it was a case where somebody answered no to that question and they hammered them with f bar penalties so uh once again i'm you know I'm, I'm the last person to try to scare anybody about this because i don't that's not how we we operate at all it's not that's not how we we run the practice um uh, i would never i would never do that but i just these recent court cases um Really have seemed to have changed the tide. So if you're doing your own tax returns, make sure check out those um, those questions on Schedule B because um, one of the cases I think hinged on the fact that that individual said no to that question. Uh, and once again, I don't I don't think any of this is fair. I think I think those penalties are are so severe compared to you know somebody you know actually just missing that form. And a lot of these penalties, whether the the 5471 penalties or the 3520 penalties, like $10,000 per like um, late filing, I mean, those are absolutely not fair. I mean, those, fair enough if you're a large company like Microsoft or Google and you have like foreign holdings and you have to file these forms and you miss them, sure, the tax department, I mean, they don't mind cutting checks for $10,000 late penalties, but not for individuals. So, it's it's so unfortunate that even exists, but um, right now that's the, that's the case. Now, that being said, I, we're not seeing a ton of those penalties. Um, but those recent court cases were, um, quite scary to be honest. Okay. Um, I don't see any other questions come in.
1: Let me just go back here. Okay. And I get,
0: you know, I get these questions all the time. How can we reach out? Um, let's keep it on the Q and a here. Um, yeah, so, um, you know, best way to reach out. Like I mentioned the Facebook group before, uh, that community that community has been absolutely awesome. So, um, make sure to join there, um, ask your questions and then, um, please answer any questions that you feel you can, you can answer. I mean, the, the community is great because everybody's just so engaged and ready to help. Um, uh, you can check out the YouTube page. Uh, I have, um, a bunch of... it's just muted my. Mike, there. Yeah, uh, you, your YouTube page for um, all the videos and the podcast. You can sign up for the podcast on Apple Podcasts as well. Um, I've been getting lots of um, thank yous for doing this on on email, on the chat. I really appreciate that. The best way to to, to um, show your appreciation for this is to. Um leave me a Google review. If you guys could do that, that's the best way. Uh, Really appreciate it. Uh, Only a couple of minutes and it makes a huge difference. So, um, you know, if you just go philhogan.com/slash reviews, you can get there. If you just Google Phil Hogan CPA, you'll see on the right hand side on Google, you can leave a review and just um just give your feedback about the the webinar. Um the more feedback I can I can get, the more of these I can I can do for sure. Um, once again, I'm gonna try to do these um, I mean the Q and A's are great for sure, uh, but you know I'll get to be more specific topics, um, and then we're going to get some guests on. So you don't have to necessarily just listen to me speak for you know an hour and a half, which um, I'm sure can get kind of tiresome here. So um, yeah, we'll have some investment advisors on here. We'll have some um, immigration attorneys. I have one lined up that's going to be a great um, uh, interview. Um, and then, yeah, just really just cross-border professionals. I mean, that's, that's really what we're, we're trying to put on the, the podcast on the YouTube, uh, channel. Um, oh, you're very welcome. Yes. Thank you for all the kind comments on the chats there. Um, let's see here. Okay. Yeah. So, um, I was just asked to put a link to the Facebook page. So what I'll do here is I can I'll do that
1: as make it easier for people to find it And I'll just drop it in the chat here. I can get to it. Okay, so let's see here. okay did that work for everybody
0: uh, okay so hopefully that worked and once again all you know all, all that information's on the website um it's on the youtube page i mean it's really plastered everywhere so if you go on the youtube page and and, and click around or um um look at any of the videos, all, all those links are there. Oh yeah. Yeah. Another great place to, um, kind of keep informed about what's going on. Um, if you subscribe to the YouTube channel, um, especially if you click the alert button, so if you subscribe and click the alerts, as soon as a new video is posted, then, um, you'll be, you'll be alerted. So, uh, I'm going to actually, I'll get this one uploaded to the YouTube, um, page and then I'll put, um, some chapters on there. So you can click through to specific questions, um, that we've, that we've covered. Um, Oh, that's nice. Okay, so somebody that thank you. Please send the link to the Google reviews page. I will do that right now. Thank you very much.
1: Um, okay. Okay, so let's a bigger screen here. Um, okay so that should take you straight to oh I should put. yeah that's an actual link there that should work.
0: Yes, you're very welcome. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, thank you for everybody that that joined us today. This is I was not expecting this many people. You guys um, sent amazing questions, um, so yeah, just I'm just so pleased um, with with the turnout. Um, and yeah, once again, just you know, if you're um, on the Facebook page, and I think most of you are going to be on the mailing list. So um, I'm going to try to I'll, you know the next one that happens, we'll we'll send it around, and hopefully it'll be a much more specific. Um, much more specific topics. I mean, most of what we're going to be talking about are, you know, Americans living in Canada and a lot of planning, um, moving from Canada. Cause I know, you know, a lot of you are in Canada already, but a lot of you are are in the U S and might retire to Canada. So that might be, um, quite helpful as well. So, okay. Well, if there's, if there are no other questions, I'll probably, we'll probably leave it there. Um, once again, if um, anybody wants to reach out, phil at, uh, or, uh, phil at philhogan.com is a great way to reach me. Um, and yeah, I just want to thank everybody again. This has been amazing. Great first test. I think it was pretty successful here. So um, like I said, we'll we'll leave it there. And then um, uh, on the next one, any of the questions I haven't um, I haven't answered, I'll try to compile them and we'll, we'll, we'll have them for the next one. So yeah, thank you everybody again. And we'll um, see you on the next one.